Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, adulting well listeners. This is Pepper, a.k.a. Joshua, a.k.a. Pepper, here to tell you about Anchor. So we used to host our podcast on another service, and we had this show for maybe three or four years at this point. And we got some metrics and things, but we didn't have a lot to do with them. And we recently switched over to Anchor. And what's amazing about it is it has all the metrics for the show. So you can see, you know, how many downloads you get and things like that. But it it also lets you engage with the audience uh, in ways that our old service couldn't. So, for instance, we can have polls. We can ask listeners to uh, leave us messages and questions and things like that. And we can uh, put them on the air super easily and answer those questions. Just uh, That's just one example, but there are just a lot of different ways that we can um, engage with you now that we're using Anchor. So uh, this is our first ad, and it's for this service that we're using to provide this podcast to you. And I think it's uh, actually a really, really good service. Um, and if you have a podcast, I recommend it. You can download the Anchor app or go to Anchor FM to get started. Uh, thanks for, uh, pausing with me for a second. Now back to the episode. Hello and welcome to the Adulting Well podcast. I am your co-host Joshua and I am joined as always... By Kevin, your co-host. And as always, I am very excited today. We have Chris Bauermeister with us, and we are going to talk about getting into punk rock, what we, what he's been up to over the last, uh, I don't know, 20 years or so. <laughs> yeah, and, 20 years. 50 years. 50 yeah, 50 years. years. Well, yeah, no, 25. Actually, I moved I moved to San Francisco when I was 25, so we'll, we'll count that as year zero. Excellent. And, uh, and, you know, whatever we get into, as, as many of you know that listen, we, uh, we're very conversational, so we kind of let this go where it goes. I'm going to hand off to Josh for the first question, and let's get this thing started. I lied. It's been 27 years since I moved to San Francisco. I'm 52 now, so. Last 27 years. Yeah, it's 27. What happened 27 years ago? I moved to San Francisco. <laughs> so you moved to San Francisco from where? Uh, we all moved to San Francisco from various places. Um, Wait, who's we? Jawbreaker. Oh, forget Jawbreaker. Forget Jawbreaker. When you did go. you? So when you were a kid, and I okay, like, we'll go back back in time. Yeah, we'll we'll go. Let's go. Let's go further back. Like because to me, I think it's really interesting to find out how people found like if if you if you were an outsider, or an outcast, or felt weird as a lot of us did. Um, how d- how did you find the music and the people that would made you feel less different? Um, a I would say. Um, I've been thinking about this recently. I think my trajectory as far as music is concerned started with um, discovering Cheap Trick, then transitioning to the Go-Go's. No, it was was Joan Jett first and then the Go-Go's. And that was all at home on my own in rural Connecticut on the radio. 
Um, then through New Wave for a while, a lot of New Wave stuff. And this is just you jamming out at your, you said you grew up in like a country, in like a Re- remote Relatively area. rural, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, half an hour outside of New Haven, Connecticut, which is where Yale is located. So it's, we were near a major city, but, you know, this is the 70s. Um, and in the house I lived in, um, uh, I'm blanking out. Hold. Let me start again. House I grew up in uh, was one of five on a seven-mile road when we moved in there in 1970. Oh, wow. Eventually, like a whole bunch of condominiums and, and um, housing developments. I think now there's like 200 houses in the same area. Oh, wow. Um, so it was, you know, it was rural at the time, and over, over time it became less rural. Were your parents into cool music? Well, I hate I hate jazz, so no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Although my mom did have a very cool um, uh, um, Rolling Stones painted black seven inch. Um, the person who introduced me, probably as a kid, to the most interesting music, we had um, my mom's property had a second house on it. She rented out, and this hippie couple moved in, but they weren't just like normal hippies. They were like I think from New York originally. And he was really into the Velvet Underground. And so I grew up, like, I thought of that, I, I didn't realize I had grown up with that as childhood music until I went mm. to college and someone put it on. I was like, wait a second, I know all these songs. <laughs> yeah. This is like, so, yeah. And then turned, I went back home. It's like, yeah, you peeled the banana. You know, we had... We <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that would, that, that's zero. And his name's Blair Sibley, and unfortunately he committed suicide. Mm. Okay. So... Growing up in rural Connecticut, mm-hmm. um, talk about a little bit what Josh was kind of mentioning. You know, a lot of us get into especially more like punk music or music that would be considered kind of on the on the outer edges of the norm mm-hmm. um, because, you know, we feel like outcasts in some way or another. And we kind of find our people as well as our music kind of in one like cohesive community. But that feels like loaded. Look, I don't want to put that on right. you. You may have been totally <laughs> yeah. well adjusted. And, and Oh God, no. Okay. God, no, no, no. I grew up with a bipolar alcoholic mother. I mean, there, now we're talking. There yeah. you go. Yeah. Isolated, trapped in a, trapped in a farmhouse with a crazy woman. Yeah. That, you know, that's sort of my background. That's how I developed, you know, keeping myself. I think we talked about this very briefly before the whole interview. Right. And because of that, I grew up um, entertaining myself a lot, you know, just, on my own, so I have a tendency, like when not right right now, while we're in a hotel room, I don't go out and do stuff. I sort of collapse in on myself sure. and just stay in the motel room. You know, we yeah. kind of talked about that because we were thinking that like we're both kind of introverty in that way that we have to force ourselves to go be social. <laughs> and I was saying like Kevin seems to be more of an extrovert, where you're kind of just going, 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 uh, and maybe that is part of. Um, you know, you said you spend a lot of time alone, so you had to learn to entertain yourself, mm-hmm. right? So That's how I learned how to play bass. Right, and that, so that makes me think, the question totally. is, Kevin, did you grow up in a big, busy household? I grew up in a household that was open to anybody. So my mom, on Thanksgiving, would have, like, any, like, wayward soul over for Thanksgiving. Um, and even when I was in high school, and, you know, my friends at that point had mohawks and were wearing Misfits t-shirts and leather jackets she was like oh yeah everybody's welcome here so it kind of just solidified my like you know the ease that i kind of slid into the punk scene with um i'm definitely more of the extrovert of the family though i have a a brother that's a little more of an introvert Mm -hmm. um but i'm i was always kind of the more boisterous like you know looking to entertain people guy so yeah yeah Yeah. no i i 
I think for me, I had the great fortune of ending up in an alternative high school mm. that had, I think, is just a little over 100 students in it. I mean, I graduated in a class of 12. Wow. Oh, wow. You know? So, it was, and it was all weird people. I mean, misfits. It wasn't all, you know, and so there's, you know, deadheads and people who got kicked out of other schools. And um, um, it was, it was just, you know, it, it, it was founded in 1970. It was an experiment. It was um, very much the same principle as um, Evergreen that's up mm. in Olympia, where nice. I live. You know, no grades. Cred- it's just credit, no credit, evaluations, communications with the... And that was actually cool for me because um, uh, it it opened up uh, education as far as making me realize that I could pursue what I wanted to in that. And so that, so the whole environment there allowed me a degree of freedom to, you know, not have what I think a lot of people, my, my wife among them had as a high school experience of being among a small group of misfits in a pool of normal people. Mm -hmm. Um, It was just, yeah. And so within that, um, and then it's, a lot of it had to do with my sister helping me because um, I was a pretty, again, introverted, good student. You know, I hung out. I, was, uh, I hung out with some stoners forever, a couple of years. That was, you know, my clique. I was a, uh, I was a Dungeons and Dragons kid for a while. Um, and then um, my sister had met friends. She ended up in the same high school, and she made friends with people who were living in New Haven. And she got involved in the punk scene in New Haven, and then I decided I was interested. And I think the first show, we were just talking about, the first show I went to was in 1984. I don't remember who was opening. Uh, it was a club called the Anthrax, which was a pivotal Connecticut show, club. You know, it's, it was in Stanford, and everyone who came through Connecticut came through there. That was one of the few. Um, and um, uh, I saw Seven Seconds on the crew tour. Um, and, um, and then from there on, I just stayed involved in that subculture. Um, and I was just thinking about this the other day. I feel like <clears throat> the people I met there were, uh, for the most part, also sort of strange. The Connecticut punks were relatively, uh, well-educated, um, and sort of, uh, strange and neurotic and um, had all ended up there for whatever reason. So it wasn't, you know, um, yeah. In sharp contrast to the neighbors to the north in Boston who were... Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but to be fair, I have to say, when I first got involved, I eventually, I gravitated towards there was a big oiskin movement happening in Connecticut. And so, you know, that I was trying to fit, find a way to fit myself. You know, you have to f- sort of, when, when you're introduced to cl- punk rock, you have to figure out what subgenre you are. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so I gravitated towards, because there's a bunch of, of um, you know, oiskins. Um, and I gravitated towards that because it was easy to get accepted. Yeah. You know, you showed up in New York City with a group of skinheads and the skinheads in New York. We're friends with you. Totally. Um, that lasted, that was a brief honeymoon. Because um, in the summer of 85, I think it was, I went to a show, I think it was one of the Bad Brains 65 final shows or something of the sort. And um, I was hanging out with some skinheads who were from New York or had come up from the South somewhere. And they said, oh, we're going to go to the Christopher Street. And I was like, okay, cool. And I wandered with them. And they bought a bag of pistachios and started spitting them, the shells, at gay couples. And there was a group of, like, 12 of us. And, like, just sort of standing there, intimidating them. I was like, 
oh my God, these people are assholes. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> I don't want to be one of them. <laughs> so yeah, I started, and then I went that night, just sort of sat in the car, bad mouth, skinheads all night long until the next morning, the house we stayed at was owned, well, not owned, but one of the guys was skinhead. said, I heard you talking shit about skinheads. And I was like, yeah, I did. You think you're a bunch of fucking assholes. And he didn't expect me to respond at all. So he just sort of was like, uh, I was like, thank you. Bye. Yeah. Do you think that gives you a perspective when you see these like alt right kids and shit like that? That you know, I've talked about on the show that I probably would have been very susceptible to that yeah. at that age, and uh, you know, wanting to be part of something and wanting to have power and wanting to have a voice. I, and... You know, I could see that, but I, you know, it's it wasn't in my character to want to. Uh, I got beat up a lot as a kid, yeah. you know, yeah. in in grade school, um, and so. And, you know, it was not in my character to want to have someone else suffer that same fate. Um, and, you know, that's what really, I think, just sort of appalled me about it, is, like, yeah. you're just being the same assholes. You're not any different than the shitheads at my grade school, you know? Right. So, so yeah. yeah. Well, it's, it's funny because there's such a... I feel like even with with that movement, especially in the 80s, there was such, like, a, a, a machismo, like, you well, know, you... male, like, tough guy kind of complex with a lot of them even you know there was the obviously the oiskins and the nazis and right. the nazis took that to a whole nother level right so i'm not going to compare the two because it's right not right but the, the funny thing is that some of them transitioned yeah you know did. some of some of the kids i knew who were into it just for i mean the oi stuff is so closely related to ska and yep. you know that's so closely related to reggae there's no inherent racism when it starts but then like the national front gets involved yep. and you end up with this and now you end up with the the, the bald-headed idiots we have today yeah yeah or the ones that now have really fashionable haircuts. That's right. <clears throat> and uh, still wear Fred Perry's. Yeah, exactly. But I, it, it's interesting that that, that that empathy was there so young, too. You know, I feel like, for, for me in some ways, like, my empathy levels have grown over the years, mm-hmm. where I'm more sensitive now than I was. Because I, a lot of times, didn't even know what the hell was going on when I was a kid. But mm-hmm. um, good for you, you know, quite yeah. honestly. I mean, yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. A, well, I've always wanted, I mean, I, my wife and I joke that I, I'm the one that's the womb in the family. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm the caregiver, and I've always cared, you know, I've been like, like little animals and whatever else. That's, that's just my character. Well, and it shows in your work as well, right? I mean, you well, ended up working for, for a, for food a bank. food bank. Yeah, exactly. And um, we can delve into that a little further <laughs> later. <laughs> I don't know. You, we were talking a little about it before the show, and it sounds actually really cool. It's really it had interesting. Kind of yeah, a flat structure. And, uh, yeah, it was actually interesting that the organization itself was interesting. Yeah. So uh, off you go to college. What I, I sent myself to New York City, and I was sort of, even though I was involved in the punk rock scene in Connecticut, I was still, I still recognized that I was um, relatively um, um, socially awkward. And I figured, oh, I'll just send myself to college in a city. I'll have to learn, right. <laughs> you know. Totally. Um, and so, yeah, I moved, uh, I went to NYU, um, 1985. Nice. And, nice. Uh, yeah. Some things might have happened there. Things well, actually, the first year I met a whole bunch of people I'm still really good friends with yeah. who have absolutely nothing to do with what's going on now from Chicago and Detroit. Um, actually, my first band, uh, first real band, was the first year as a band called Butcher Clyde. Um, Butcher Clyde, Butcher Clyde, yes, we had some really awful lyrics. Um, <laughs> and actually, did you play bass? I played bass, I've always played bass. I okay. never, I'm not, I'm not a musician, I'm a bass player. Sure, it's the only... <laughs> oh man, there's gonna be some upset bass players when they hear that. Well, actually, I'll, I'll tell a little, I'll add my little story here. You know, there's this whole series of 
whole period of time when you've got like all these bands like the Gossip or White Stripes and it's a really popular band forming that have no bass player at all. Mm-hmm. So my theory is that whenever one of these uh, uh, form, um, one of us pops out of existence and appears in this little <laughs> nebulous realm called Bass Player Island. There's a whole bunch of us just sitting around there. Eh, another one? Awesome. Another one? Yeah, another band. Oh, fuck. Wait, what do you guys do on bass player? How do bass players chill out on the island? I haven't gotten that far. I was sort of inspired vaguely by this this uh, um, uh, 1980s comic book writer named Matt Haworth, who had this sort of trans-dimensional thing going on, um, and he had a band where Cthulhu played keyboards. So, it's amazing. That is kind of when did you start playing bass? I started playing bass when I was, I think. 18, 17, 16, um, I was trying to decide what rock and roll instrument I would teach myself mm. or learn. You knew you wanted to... I wanted to play rock and roll. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I looked around. Well, you know what? I completely forgot about the Pretenders. The Pretenders were probably the pivotal band for me into getting into harder rock. Cool. Um, as opposed sense. to sort of like... And, then, and it was Pete Farnan from the Pretenders who I was like, yeah, I think I can play bass. It, it, looks, it looks cool. He looks really cool. He did look really he cool. He looked really cool. Well, your bass also isn't just bass. Like, I don't want to make that's the stupidest thing. I've no, ever no, said. I know what you mean. No, because yeah, you're like a lead melody. Like, you're part of the song in a way that it doesn't blend into the well, background. Well, that and that comes from the fact that I really spent a couple, like three years, playing with my with just alone. Yeah. And the great fortune is that I could, uh, you know, I had until we started having neighbors who complained, but I could just jam out and so i'm doing a lot of because you you know you can't write a bass line to you can't just play a bass line on its own usually although that's not true i mean if you can find a good hook you know you can play just a rip but then that's where i get developed all the chord stuff and playing the lead lines and yeah well that's the interesting thing i think too about your playing that stands out to me as a drummer because i've played with a lot of bass players over the years and you know that you play one with a pick and that you play chords Mm -hmm. Um, and that you play a combination of chords and notes in a lot of the songs and clearly write your own parts to every song. It doesn't come like in a box from the songwriter. And that goes for the other stuff you've done as well. It's not, not just jawbreaker when you're playing with other bands as well. Yeah. Oh, pretty much. Yeah. No, I'm, I've always, I've always, um, yeah, it's always been the case. Yeah. And so, I mean, there's some songs which, you know, you know, you don't require, I think I play, I've become less complex over time because recognizing that, you know, the essence of playing well in some cases is holding back and just mm-hmm. playing simple parts so that, you know, the times when you do play a fill or something is more, you know, has more impact. Or there's some songs that just really just require the bass to follow the main, hold down the main rhythm while the other instruments are allowed to, you know, play the elaborations upon it. Nice. Nice. So, uh, talk a little bit more about your experience in New York. Cause you were there for f- quite a few years. Well, I was there. We went. It was there for three years, and then moved to Los Angeles. Um, that's when um, I met uh, uh, Blake and Adam um, in my sophomore year, um, and we were playing. Adam was there in New York sophomore year. Then uh, junior year, Adam was back in in Los Angeles, and we were bi-coastal. And 
the summer between sophomore and junior, I had moved to um, Los Angeles, and so that's a lot of commitment for that age for for a band. Yeah, isn't it? yeah, I guess so. You know, but uh, it's just sort of. I mean, it worked out. Obviously, it worked out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like you know, it's, I was having fun. I had never lived any, but I'd never been in the West Coast. Yeah, um, right. at that point, you know, I I grew up in New York. I see Connecticut, Rhode Island. Um, back and forth to New York, um, trips to Germany. My dad's from Germany. Um, but really not a lot of experience of the rest of the United States. And so moved to Los Angeles for a while, then moved to Los Angeles for a year and worked on that. So completing my degree in New York. <clears throat> what did you study, by the way? I started off uh, wanting to be an engineer, mm-hmm. and then I hit college-level calculus and realized <laughs> that, you know, that takes too much time. That's so I hard. became, I speak English. I'll be an English major. Right. Um, and then when I came back from the year away thinking about what I wanted to do, I decided I I became a, a I did this self guided program at the Gallatin Division of NYU and ended up studying philosophy and literature. Nice, nice. That's uh, and then you went on to get an advanced degree. After after the band broke up, when when the band broke up in '96, then we moved out to Chicago in '98, and I got a degree in history. Chicago. Yeah. How long were you in Chicago? We were in Chicago for four years between '98 and 2002. Important historical context here. This is after you met Lucy. After I met Lucy. Yeah, I was going to say, so you guys have been together for a long time. That's really As cool. of this November, we will have been together for 25 years. That is fantastic. Congratulations. Yeah, we celebrate our anniversary on the day after Thanksgiving. And Hi, honey. We, we, <laughs> we, we love plugs, so um, I'd love to hear a little bit about Lucy's business because it's pretty, well, it's really you unique. No, honestly, she's she's backing off on that one really? right now. Yeah, yeah so let's, let's, we right. can cut that part. All right, all right. fair enough. <laughs> we'll, we'll fix it in post. Yeah, <laughs> fix it in post. Um, <laughs> uh, so, so how did you get started? Do you mind if we talk about the grocery store? Is that weird for you? Oh, the the food bank. Yeah, food bank. yeah, because sure. I think that kind of fits in with what yeah, we like to talk I mean, about, which is being an adult. Being an adult. And well, see, I was going to say something. It, I was thinking about this, you know, yeah. in context. I think um, growing up in the situation that I did, I was dealing with a lot of adult situations really early on. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to move out of the house because I didn't want to live with a crazy woman when I was like seventeen. Um, and fortunately we moved in with relatives or a house that relatives had, but already by the age of 17, 18, I was dealing with rent and groceries Mm. and balancing budgets and, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, but by the same token, um, I've also, you know, I'm completely devoid of children, which means that I, you know, in some ways I haven't really had to adapt certain adult things. I don't have to consider their, you know, so I, I'm, I'm relatively childish in certain ways and relatively adult in other ways so but you do have animals two animals yes two cats yeah so yeah little uh i mean for me i have i have a dog and two kids Mm -hmm. and you know you got to take care of the dog too yeah you know he's a lot of responsibility and that's and that's the thing is i think it's why i favor cats you can you know you can shut you can leave a cat alone with a big bowl of food and a big bowl of water for like three days it's fine yeah. you do that with your kid you're gonna get arrested right <laughs> or your dog you or your arrested. dog yeah. yeah well your dog's not gonna like it. <laughs> no your house is gonna be a mess for the dog well, there's somebody else that also likes cats in here oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah we both have two cats yeah. and we both describe them yeah, by we their had trace a discussion about the cats we, yes i'm like what are their names so he's like you know the fat one <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the smart one <laughs> They, so, they, they choose their own names. So <laughs> talk a little bit about how, uh, you know, you're, you end up with an, with an advanced degree, right? Yep. And obviously, interestingly enough, this is, sorry, this is one of the things I really love about the punk scene is 
everywhere we go, we run into people we know. Right. So you ended up in grad school with Chuck Goshert. Actually, no, I didn't. Or, he was in a different program. Right. He was somewhere else. Oh, but, that's right. But, but you yeah. close by. I think so, yeah. But I, I didn't... Who did I... That was the weird thing about grad school, is the... I went to Purdue, and there... At Purdue, there was really no one who got right. it, who understood. Um, there were no other punks. Right. That I, well, he said I he, had, he would have to travel from there to go to shows. Right, right. Like, there well, wasn't necessarily shows in the town where mm-hmm. where the school was. Yeah, exactly. Although, let's actually know that I'm, I'm lying. I lived... Um, through Ben Weasel, I met a gentleman named uh, Mass Giorgini, who ran Sonic Iguana Studios down okay. in in where in Lafayette, where okay. Purdue is, um, and I rented a room in his house. Right. And so I had a connection there because um, bands would come through, and I'd meet them at the takeout Chinese restaurant. Awesome. So yeah, and then um, and then we actually lived two hours north in Chicago. Um, I commuted down to that one bedroom, but then lived, Lucy was up at Loyola okay. in Chicago, and so I'd commute back and forth over in the week. I'd be like down for four or five days in mm. Chicago, in, in Indiana, and then back up to Chicago for three or th- two or three days in the, right. every week. Right. Um, obviously, we jumped over a little bit of history. Well, we can uh, go backwards and yeah. stick it in there. So you were you moved. So you were in L.A. I was in L.A. And then did you move back to New York? Moved back to New York. So so we did three up to junior year. Then we. All moved to L.A. and concentrated on the band. Okay. Um, and that's when um, um, uh, we got uh, the, on the first 7-inch. That's when uh, Mel Cheplowitz from Shredder got interested mm-hmm. in us. So we, we interviewed Walter. Yes. And my understanding from Adam, and this is the first time I'd heard this story, was the other night when I was just hanging out with him, is that Walter sent your demo tape uh, to Kevin, Mel. Kevin, you want me to pick that up? That name you dropped? Yeah, okay. <laughs> Walter or Adam? I don't know. <laughs> Walter's one of my heroes. So, um, But that he introduced you guys because he was like a huge fan of the we got, demo. We got played. Yeah, the demo got played uh, on MRR. And right. That's, that's how we got introduced up here. And um, What and was actually, on the, the demo? Oh, all sorts of weird stuff. I think the only song that might have been on the demo, which... Um, Ended up somewhere else was Shield Your Eyes. All right. You know? Right. And there's a whole bunch of other stuff that... I think I, there's even the stuff that I sang on, which is pretty abysmal, because listen to this voice, you know? Dulcet <laughs> tones. So, um, kind of like, uh, whatever. In any case, um, yeah. So, that was that was um, how we ended up finding San Francisco and being... Yeah, people were more friendly up here. It was nice. Um, so, yeah, that's why we ended up here after... Going back to college and our first tour in '90, then we all broke up, um, and then um, realized after getting our, our our BAs that we um, the LP that we put out in the meantime was actually getting some traction, um, and it might be a good idea to um, to go and see what we could do with that. It was, and there's a moment I actually had to break up with a woman um, who I really didn't want to break up with at the time but mm-hmm. it was just the nature of life um and i moved to san francisco nice um and um yeah that was when i was 25 and we just concentrated on the band and that's that's how that's how jawbreaker happened but so you guys were living you were living in the mission, mission yeah. and working at a 
Toy Story. Toy Story. Yeah. Yeah, that's well. I, I had a couple of bad jobs through. Um, what, toy, what toy store? That old one on uh... Imaginarium. There was two uh-huh. of them. There was one in the Stonestown Mall, and there was one up above the marina. Awesome. Um, and it was one of the first hands-on toy shops. Okay. And it was actually really cool to work at because um, the manager, Gail, um, who also a freak, she was an actor. Um, I think she ended up playing a Klingon, a Great American for a what? while. I forget. She eventually ended up getting some, some I think, some decent roles. Um, but again, through friends I knew from Olympia, actually, who were working there. Um, and her boyfriend was in a band, so you know it was a part-time job. And I'd say, I have to be gone for three months. And she'd be like, okay, have fun, and then oh, hire perfect. me back when I came back. You know, so, um, so that was interesting. So yeah, I worked at a toy shop. Nice. And where was it located? There was two of them. Okay. There was one in the Stone Temple. I did right, work Stones there. Town. That was Stones. Yeah. I actually worked in the the Marina one to begin. Actually, during when Jawbreaker was together, I only worked in the Marina one. Right. Yeah. And during now, didn't you meet Lucy about this time? Yeah, okay. I met Lucy at a day after Thanksgiving Day party. She was best friends with one of Blake's roommates, um, and um, uh, actually, we're going to try to recreate the mixer this year. Uh, oh, uh, yeah, that's funny. you know, we it was like a bad horror movies, cheap red wine, and pasta, and so yeah, and I met her, and she you know happened to um, miss the last Bart back, and I gave her a ride, and realized she lived a block away, and then waited the requisite forty eight hours before calling her up, and <laughs> took her out on a date, and we've been seeing each ever since. So did it right, did it right. So. You guys were here, uh, what years was it? 91 to 90, actually I was here to 98, so right. 91 to 98, yep. And then um, during that time, a lot happened. A lot happened, <laughs> indeed. And a lot of it is covered in a, in a film that's yeah, going to play exactly. at the Yeah, exactly, and it's in, in the, I mean, if we're talking about adult life, that was really not adult life. Yeah. <laughs> that's why I'm like, let's skip it. Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. You know, that was, I want to learn about you. <laughs> <laughs> I was, you know, and I think very much, I mean, part of the, the impetus that made me um, disenchanted with that was because I wanted to go back into I wanted to do something else. I sort of fantasized about academia, right. and um, which we talked about. That yesterday. seemed to be the track. Like yeah. other than music, that was the other. Well, yeah. Track. I mean, before like I had a an English professor uh, tell me that you know, essentially say he would support me doing graduate studies. Nice. Um, you know, uh, and I, I had to make that choice. You know, do I do go into graduate? I'm, I'm doing this well. You know, I have an amazing grade point average. They love me. I mean, I do, you know, yeah. and, and, or do I go and be in a band? The band thing for a while, I was like, I, you know, let's see, you know, I'm not, I'm not being intellectually challenged. I'm getting tired of talking about what kind of strings or speakers I use. Right. You know, so yeah. So what I did is after the band broke up, um, I started taking classes at SF State because I hadn't taken any history classes. Um, of course, you know, I, I now have degrees in all of the completely unemployable humanities. Sure. <laughs> Philosophy, literature, history, you know. Nice. Someone's got to do it. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so we were, in, we were in, put all our stuff into storage, moved to Hanover, Hanover, as it's called. And the reason I call it the Indianapolis of, of Germany is because it's a major, it's on a major um, railroad hub, you know, right. between Amsterdam and Berlin. So everyone's passed through there, but no one really stops there. Okay. And really it's a sort of medium sized city that has not a lot. It took us months to even find where the, the punk rock club was. And I think we went there twice, you know? <laughs> well, I mean, it's kind of hard to probably want to go out when you're dug into documents all day long. Partly. Too. Yeah. And then, and then sort of the, you know, even though I had mastered German to some degree, it still was sort of a stumbling, you know, 
we stuck out. You know, when we started talking, people were like, ah, you're American. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> then, but, they, then they ask you in a condescending tone if you would prefer English. No, actually, interestingly really? enough, that was the tough thing about Hanover. It's not like Berlin. It mm-hmm. didn't have oh, a, so they... a lot of English speakers. They're, the good thing about Hanover is that they speak a very clear, crisp German. So they would correct you, and you would understand exactly what they were saying nice. to you. Nice. <laughs> and then you would make the same mistake again. So um, <laughs> after that, we moved to Olympia, and we were both technically still working on our dissertations. Um, and then in, so that was 2003, we moved to Olympia. Right. Um, and then I guess in 2006, three years later, um, I realized, well, in part, the university upped. So when you're, you can do distant study. So you, we, you know, you do, you do your um, graduate coursework, then you do exams, final exams, which are usually oral exams. And then, so that you pass all of that and then you go off to write your dissertation. You can either do that within the university structure or you can do that distanced. And then you have like a nominal amount. And I think it started off like $1,000 a year, which was, or $1,000 a semester, which is doable. But then like three years in, it it went up to like $5,000 a semester. And we're like, I haven't written anything. I've been using this as sort of a floater justification for what I'm doing. Right. And sort of, that's what I'm doing with my, well, no, you're just sort of hanging out in Olympia, meeting people and getting drunk. Right. Um, <laughs> drinking, drinking a lot. Um, well, we can talk about that too. And then, um, yeah. And then I that gave up my dissertation and ended up just sort of going down a rabbit hole of, of uh, alcohol and marijuana use. Um, that ultimately ended with me having a uh, manic break um, mm. and ending up in rehab and then getting kicked out of rehab because I was a suicide risk and ending up in a suicide ward. And interestingly enough, this, the people in the suicide ward reminded me very much of my old friends who I met first when I got involved in punk rock. Yeah, I'm sure. Because they were all, they were some of the smartest, most perceptive people I had met, you know, they were, we were all on the same page about how bad things sucked. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, this is, you know, that, that philosophical question. Would you rather be aware, intelligent, and miserable or stupid and happy? Right. And it's like, oh, look, we're all aware and intelligent. And of course we're miserable. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's, I think it's interesting too, because there's so much of a correlation between, you know, um, you know, issues around mental health and, substance abuse mm-hmm. because for so many of us and you know we talk about this i've been sober going on 20 years now and one of the things that i that really has until the last few years really has gone really untreated is that the that you know or at least public awareness wasn't up i know there's a lot of dual diagnosis treatment even back when i went to rehab right. but just the public awareness now is like so much higher yeah and people are more willing to talk about it right you know and right. i feel like i i kind of like dodged the bullet a little bit because there is a fair amount of mental illness in my family um you know and especially like around bipolar disorder mm-hmm. um and you know although i used opiates to soothe my own depression mm-hmm. Um, it didn't have the effect that it had on other people on me. Like, right. it kind of woke me up. Right. Made well, yeah, me no, feel I had, happy. Yeah, I had that same experience with 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 the opiates that I was given, like painkillers. Yeah, they they did that for me. I became mm-hmm. they didn't slow me down at all. They made me wake up. Um, you well, know, and I, I was using the marijuana heavily to sort of medicate, try to slow myself down mm-hmm. with the mania. But the problem that happens there is they've done tests recently. It's not that the use of THC 
will actually cause insanity. Mm -hmm. But if you have underlying tendencies towards um, bipolar and schizophrenia, the levels of THC which are contained in contemporary marijuana are such that they will actually trigger your, or oh. push you into mental illness. Jeez, that sounds well, like, uh, you know, when you're in your 20s, there's always a few casualties that mm-hmm. do acid, and there yeah. are always guys that you mm-hmm. thought kind of were on the edge anyway, mm-hmm. and, and then the schizophrenia gets triggered. Yeah. Well, but, you know, I mean, the potency of THC now, I mean, it's a hallucinogen anyway. Yeah. But yeah. now the potency is so high that it's kind of getting to that level. Yeah. You know, and I think it's, it, it's interesting because it's one of the things that I, I want to talk about. I'm yeah. glad you broached the subject because... I don't want people to talk about things they're not comfortable with either, but your your life changed dramatically oh, yeah. with sobriety. Yes. I mean, like, dramatically. Yeah, yeah no, it, I mean, it does. You, you, there's there's people you don't hang out with anymore. Um, you know, you don't, I mean, it's tr- it's tough figuring out, like, what do I do at nights? I don't go out to the bars anymore. That's right. like, like that whole social environment is sort of cut off. Mm-hmm. Um, for a while, I couldn't go to shows, house shows in mm-hmm. Olympia are traditional sort of like drunken, rowdy parties, <laughs> you know, and I didn't really want to be around them. At this point, you know, it's been long enough that, that I'm not um, really tempted anymore. Um, but it was tough, yeah. you know, also because um, <laughs> I had the very great irony that I think I gave up smoking marijuana like a year before it came, became legal. Of and then all, then it was everywhere. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, my God. Right. You know, and, like, and that, was, that was just bad. I couldn't walk into houses, just reeked of pot smoke. Um, but, yeah, um, so that, yeah, the sobriety has helped me a lot as far as, I mean, obviously, um, uh, being on a set of a numerous... Um, um, psychoactive drugs in order to help keep the, the madness in check. Right. You can't take any risks. The, the alcohol or anything else will mm-hmm. just fuck with that stuff. And so, totally. you know, I don't... I mean, in, in truth, my, my... You know, people say a higher power or whatever. The, my guiding um, principle is I didn't want to lose my wife. Right. Yeah. You know? Well, but there's, a, there's kind of a really... Kind of a, a really important point in there. And I'm sure Joshua has something to say about that. I just well, raised my hand. That's yes. All. Yeah. Um, <laughs> One of the things that I've noticed rings true for a lot of people around their, you know, sobriety issues or recovery issues, whatever you want to say, having that, like having somebody that's really supportive of you makes such a difference. And finding that person a lot of times is very difficult. You had that person. I right? wasn't really, you know, completely in my right mind when right. I first came yeah, back. Yeah, sure, I was, yeah. I was j- freshly sober. I mean, what? Maybe... A month because right. I got kicked out of the rehab program, right. you know, and then I got kicked out of the the, the suicide ward because my health insurance wouldn't pay it anymore. Ugh. So, and that that's why I ended up with FTW tattooed on my neck. Cause there was there was a tattoo parlor that I could see from the window of the suicide ward across the highway, oh, and I was shit. like, I'm going there and I'm going to get FTW tattooed on my neck. I'm so glad you said that because I would never ask someone about their tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> I really wanted to know. It took me forever. I was like, I was dwelling on it. What do I do? Wait a second. There's this entire. There's a. This means something. It has an entire history to it. You know. Yeah. For the listeners, this is on the neck. Yeah, yeah. It's a big FTW with iron crosses yeah. as the periods and gothic script. Yeah. Oh yeah, and in black. It's yeah. awesome. Yeah, and so so um, yeah, um, and I regretted that. I mean, that was really a, a soul crushing because I, you know, when I finally gave my mind back again, I was like, what did I do? I've got this thing on my neck for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. I'm how am I going to get a job? Who, what? And I was really depressed. I was really depressed one day, and this friend of ours looked at me, and she's like, oh, "I think you should get WTF on the other side." Yeah, good <laughs> call. Like, hmm. 
Yes, yeah. that's good. And I waited eight years, and then when when the band reformed, I was like, now is the time. Yeah. And it took me a while. At first, I was going to get it in like puffy white cloud letters with like hearts as the periods, but um, I, then I found this really cool 1970s um, um, advertising font. And then the tattoo artist at this place called um, Lit Fuse, um, he's really good, a guy named Marco, um, who does a lot of lettering, which is why I chose him. Cool. You know, when, uh, you, you, when you get a tattoo, you, if you really want to get it, you don't have the, our tattoo artist just reproduce an image you found. You right. do let them have their own creativity because mm-hmm. that's the way you have. I mean, that's where that's how it's a piece of art that that person has created. You let them put their own their own ideas into it. You know. Right. Yeah, I mean, I I also so fuck. I've been doing tattoos wrong. <laughs> I feel <laughs> they're like, just in my drawings. Well, you know, I have I have some which are directly my drawings or direct images I found. Yeah, the other yeah. ones, I'm like, I'm gonna fix this. Yeah. So sometime in all this, in the move to Olympia, you got out of academia, which we had a discussion about. Yeah. Um, you yeah. Know, I mean, not on here. Just just and you know, my kind of reference was like. Mm-hmm. Academia is like the football for really smart people. Yes, you know, yes, we were it's talking like, about it's that. It's super yeah. competitive, and you know, there's very few jobs for very many people. Right, exactly, and so, and you have to become a, sort of a really awful type of person. Not all. I, let me let me hesitate to say there are some very nice people in academia, but it seems like the ones who are rewarded are the ones who are the shittiest. You know, <laughs> who are the most backbiting and ambitious, and yeah. you know, but. In, to be fair, you also have to be quite intelligent, usually, right. you know. And there, I met some, I mean, I had some great teachers in academia. Absolutely. Um, who, uh, you know, unfortunately, there's none of them in my, my graduate program. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, no, I did meet a really nice one. She didn't get tenure. She got completely screwed over because of personal politics. Yeah. You know, she had been there. She, wrote, she published her book. She was doing great work. But because like, she had been chosen over some other professor that the male professors... You know, the female professor said refused to accept this one guy they wanted because he was whatever reason. So as a punishment to them, they didn't give her tenure. It's just, you know, you think that academia is about, like, the ivory tower and thought, but it has the same cruddy interpersonal, you know, bullshit that happens with any group of people. Humans. Yeah, humans. I hate it when people... And that's what my, this is my, my wife and so I say it a lot. Yeah. Like, I hate it when people dot dot dot. Yep. That's yep. all you need to say. Well, so in that time, yep. somewhere along the way, you ended up going to work for the food bank. <laughs> I hope the mic is picking this. Oh yeah, there's like some screaming going on. This like this is pretty constant here. We're at the Rock and Roll Hotel out yeah, here. We are. Yeah, yeah. Phoenix. It's, there's always something going on at the pool outside. Yeah, they are definitely partying down there. Oh yeah. Um, so you got a job at the food bank. Eventually, so yes. I started off when um, um, when um, George Bush or George W. Bush got reelected. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I said to myself, "I can't change anything nationally. This is this is ridiculous. This is appalling. What can I do locally?" And I had a friend who was involved with a um, uh, uh, um, an outreach group, a needle exchange and night outreach group, which basically rides around on bicycles mm-hmm. um, with carts. It's called Eggy Hop, Emma Goldman Youth and Homeless Outreach Program. Um, and it's an, an anarchist collective, um, which is still in action um, and morphs continuously because people move in and out. And, right. um, and um, you know, they, um, um, 
we, you know, rode around. Someone, someone was out every night to try to help provide services for when the other social service uh, venues were closed. So oh, we great. got clothes and we had food and we get coffee from people. Some of the restaurants would give us that and we do um, awesome. needle exchange, which is borderline. I mean, the, the, I mean, just because people are, are addicts doesn't mean they have to die from AIDS, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so getting clean needles to people also um, helping distribute the drug Narcan before. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's become much more widespread now, you, you know, People know about it, but back in the, what was it, 90, no, 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 2000, when I first started, it was probably 2004, I think, 2005 right. at most, and, you know, it wasn't a widely, I mean, people were treating it like it was an illegal drug, you know, right. it's like, it doesn't Well, and for people that have listened to the podcast, they're well aware of Narcan, because okay. we talked about it extensively Great. in one of our episodes, but I just want to reiterate, Narcan is the drug that counteracts opioid overdose, and will, like, give your body a chance to clear the effects of the op- opioid or opiate It'll in save your someone's system. life. It'll right. save your life. Yeah. It's all it does. And it doesn't make you high. It doesn't it just no. blocks the receptors. Yep. That the, it knocks the opiates out of those receptors yep. in your brain. Yep. And for people that are hooked, it's it can be quite uncomfortable. Yeah, no. But it will you, save your life. Yeah, because you become completely straight again. Right. You know, you, and, and the one thing that's that's dangerous is you want, you got to try to make sure they don't try to get high. Right. You know, some right people, away. Right away. Exactly. Um, but yeah, so so I was involved in that for a while, um, ended up being the treasurer, and then I became um, um, uh, involved uh, as um, in as the bookkeeper for um, oh god, I'm trying to remember. Not, I think it's a Catholic Workers Organization, which is the small C Catholic Workers for yeah. when. So you know you're part of the organization and. The, you live in a house. The, they actually own two houses, right. um, and they existed for a while. And that was that was bread and roses. Right. Um, and they um, they they've morphed through various iterations of what they do. Um, for the longest time, they were um, uh, providing homes for um, women, um, mm-hmm. homeless women, or um, to try to get back on their feet to have a location. Nice. To um, but eventually, what happened is they found that that they were getting tossed the people who no one else could deal with. Mm. And so, and none of them had mental health training. And you're dealing with these incredibly troubled people, and it's a nightmare. Right. And so they eventually became more of a support network for people working within the social welfare um, organization. But, that, but I was out of it by then. And then I had my break. Um, and when I came back, I started volunteering at the food bank as a means of getting myself out of the house and uh, inserting myself into social situations. Because I had... No social skills, I'd, I'd burn them out because um, the only way I knew how to hang out around people was to get high or get drunk. Yeah. You know, I, I lost all ability to, and, <laughs> and also as a byproduct of getting high, I became much more introverted. I didn't want to hang out with people. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to hang out at home and get stoned and do whatever weird projects I was doing. So in order to make myself, um, to, to reincorporate myself into society, I found the food bank and started volunteering there and after about a year there um, um, a job came up and I applied for that another job came up and I applied for that how, so, does a, how does a so a lot of our listeners uh, okay. like know about food banks right like but some don't know even what that is okay so a lot of the majority of food banks are private organizations right they I mean you think they might be part of the government or the state no the government or state very rarely provides those resources they're almost all 
handled most usually by church organizations. Mm-hmm. And the, the one in Thurston County where I live um, in Olympia was founded by a church originally. Right. Um, they're a, a private, what you call a 501c3, which is a nonprofit um, right. cat, uh, tax categorization. I, I'm not going to bore your listeners with, all, I know a lot of weird bookkeeping stuff, which is great for people who are really into bookkeeping, <laughs> but is, you know, a snore fest for all, all, No, but we could all, have a podcast all, about starting nonprofits. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Led by Chris. That's, so, so a lot of, well, I didn't start it. I, I, I will make no claim. Well, no, I didn't start it. When we actually turned the, the, the eggy hop at one point, we took over from the person who was running it and actually turned it into a legal nonprofit. And I was the treasurer at the point. But I had to stop doing that because no one would give me receipts. And I wasn't about to sign off on it. you were getting non-compliance from anarchists? I can't. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> tripping right now. Yeah, and actually then, then with the Bread and Roses thing, there was, there was um, we were getting HUD money. Um, and I was, I, have, you know, I was just doing the bookkeeping and I was uninformed. Right. Um, and there was a moment when things fell apart and when we were changing the organization where they lost the HUD funding because there was a lack of documentation. There was like a, a brief moment there where there was a chance I was going to go to white, white collar prison because oh, no. I was the treasurer that would been writing off on these HUD grants, right. you know. Um, fortunately enough, the, the nonprofit organization, Catholic Community Services, um, other organizations within Olympia um, stepped in and, you know, uh, um, uh, uh, helped lift that organization back up out of, you know, basically fired the entire staff and, sure. you know, rearranged it and um, everything came out clean there. Um, but so, so the food bank, the way ours worked, the one, the Thurston County Food Bank worked, is it was at that time, there was only one building and it was basically a vertical, there was no vertical hierarchy. There was, we had the director and then every other employee what I eventually became uh, uh, when I got the job, all of us were technically sort of the managers. And then what would be employees in any other organization were filled by volunteers. Okay. Um, and so it was huge numbers of volunteers. And so it's, again, it's, it's you know, the organizations like Walmart and other places that don't pay people a living wage, you know, rely on, you know, the charity of the the, the community in which they're living to pick up these, you know, and uh, make these people be able to to um, get on with their lives. I right, mean, yeah. the principle that, that the the nice thing I liked about the the Thurston County Food Bank is there was no um, there was no financial um, or you didn't have to prove anything. Right. You just walk in the door and say you're hungry, um, and you can get food. It didn't matter. Um, the the notion behind that being that. Um, um, you know, you don't want to wait till someone's completely destitute. Um, right. You know, so you know a lot of families are living on the edge, and you know, making it paycheck to paycheck, and then something happens like the you know you have an illness in the family, mm-hmm. or the car breaks down, or something that you have to spend, and then you don't have that money for food or right. whatever Heating else. And there's also, I mean, there's other organizations in town that help with rental assistance and right. stuff. Um, so you I know. used to go to a food bank in my late twenties when I lived in Portland. Mm-hmm. Well, I was and I had, I had an under the table job busting tables for ca- some cash, and then I went to the food bank for food, and that's what I did while I learned how to program, and that's how I was able to get a job. So, right, yeah. right. I mean, yeah, it's it's there as a network. I mean, a lot of the punk rockers I knew 
you know, went to the food bank. Um, when I see my friends there, hey, how you doing? Yeah. <laughs> Got to so get that powdered milk, man. That's <laughs> because in Olympia, as we talked about earlier, it's the People's Republic of Olympia, and there's right. all these, you know, people coming there for these free services. That's right. That's right. <laughs> talking, yeah. Because you social justice warriors yeah. are really, yeah. you're just giving away too much you're stuff. Just giving away there. too much stuff. Well, the interesting thing about, I think that has a lot to do also with the um, fact that uh, Evergreen is there. Yeah. And so it's a magnet. There's a lot of, you know, it took me a moment. I was like, I'm working with all these like 60, 60 year olds who are really cool and giving and, Oh wait a second! These are hippies. <laughs> this is what old hippies look like. Oh, okay, yeah. you know. <laughs> well, it's interesting because I I was listening to a um, you know, and I'm an NPR listener, mm-hmm. and you know that obviously that that evil lefty. Radio. Oh right, yeah, exactly. So um, even though they they're constantly rated as like the most fair and balanced reporting, right, and that, fact that, reporting oh, in the God. world. I mean. When I hear them, like, allow some right-wing idiot to spout off, I mean, they're and, fair and balanced, yeah. but it's just like, I, I'm sorry, I just can't, I turn that off. It's I, hard. Yeah, it's hard. I, I heard it today. I'm yeah. Over here yeah. Talking yeah. About the, the, Let's the, interview the Scabies. Let's yeah. hear Scabies' side of the story. <laughs> so, but one, one of the things I heard recently, which I think really affects your former job, and I know you're not working there now, but apparently because of these, um, you know, these amazing tariffs that we have going on, there is a lot of food left in the U.S. from and a huge harvest this year, uh, biggest harvest we've had in like a decade. Uh, so we've got this combination of China is not buying food from the U.S., mm-hmm. Canada is not buying certain foods from the U.S. Mm-hmm. because we've got tariffs going on. Mm-hmm. We've got a trade war happening. Interesting, even though people don't want to say it. So food banks are about to get a windfall of food because the Trump administration is having to turn the Department of Agriculture into essentially a social service organization (laughs) and buy all this food from farmers to give it away to food banks. Yeah, no, that's how we got it. You know, we have, there's a, there's a program. I'm kind of, remember that it has an acronym to it. And that's essentially the, the, we would get food from the government um, because they had to buy it from farmers in order to subsidize the prices and keep them. So yeah, we get well, there's going to be chicken. a lot of it this year. Great, yep. You know, so. and 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 the organization uh, has an enormous. We uh, the when eventually we bought a warehouse, um, and they built a, a f- freezer refrigerator that you can drive a forklift into. Yeah, and so we we're in a good position to accept this kind. Of, well, they are. They, they are. Well, and they they've I've heard, I heard some food bank directors saying that they're not even sure what they're going to do with all this food. Oh, yeah, it happens all the well, time. But the, um, the best part about this, to me, the, the the subtle irony in all of this is that essentially, and by no charitable choice here, mm-hmm. the current administration is going to be giving food away to all these mooches on public assistance <laughs> because, because of this choice of, you know, raising tariffs on foreign... Government. It's bananas. Oh, yeah. Chris, should we talk about the the we that just slipped out and how you you sort of had to separate yourself from this recently, right? Like you from the from the food. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. No, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. The, the, the issue is, uh, you know, as in the case of most nonprofit organizations, you're working on a small budget. Yep. Um, and I have to say that that the the Thurston County Food Bank is probably the most uh, efficient well-functioning social service organization I've ever worked mm. for, volunteered for. They 
brilliant management, brilliant. I mean, the nice thing about working in social services is there's not a lot of mean, ambitious people. Yep. Right. And so, um, so yeah, but the issue there is that... But what's know, the, like, chemtrail ratio? Like, believing... <laughs> like... <laughs> Just kidding. Uh. So, um, but, um, but um, yeah, what the, the issue there is that, you know, like I said, the employees, there's, there, was, there was under 20 employees in the organization, roughly. And so and there was no such thing as not my job. Right. Um, and because I had to, you know, the, my boss was cool with me being gone for one week out of every month since April of last year when we started practicing for Riot Fest. Right. Um, but then, and then, you know, they were, he was fine with it, and, and my immediate manager and everyone was, and my coworkers were fine for covering for me totally. while I was gone for this one thing. But then when it looked like, when it, and as it turned out to be a more long-running project, um, they couldn't do without a staff member that often. You right. know, that, that, that absence became noted because, because there was no such thing as not my job, if whenever I was gone, someone had to fill in and do totally. my job. Mm-hmm. So on top of their own job. So that was just non-functional and was a mutual agreement. And so I, uh, yeah, as of March of 2018, um, stepped out of that job. A friend of mine who's very competent got it. Was it hard? It was tough um, because um, I think having that job and having that daily, monthly, weekly schedule helped a lot as a component of my rehabilitation, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know? Um, oh, totally. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. providing me with structure, providing mm-hmm. me with a sense that I belonged, I was doing something for the community, I was doing something for society as a whole. Right. Um, and so I think I'm a little adrift right now. Not that like playing in a band doesn't give people joy and hope and stuff like that, but it, it isn't as tangible. Right. It's like know? a spike well, every once in a while rather right. than kind of a steady right. thing. But also, I mean, I think so, and I'm glad we've skipped most of the history part yeah. of it because, you know, quite honestly, go see the movie. Yeah. You know, the, everything's there. Yep. Everything you need to know yep. is there. But the going forward part, and I think this is the thing that's really interesting to me about the situation that the the three of you are in now. You're adults. Mm -hmm. You're on a very different level from what I've seen as far as your relationships with each other. Yeah. I I mean, I think there's an advantage to not having to be around each other all the time. Yeah. I mean, as you grow older, you... I mean, I think the only person I can be around all the time and even then we sometimes have problems is, is Lucy. Yeah. Right. Of course. Of course. Well, and, but also the, it quickly turned from like a reunion Mm -hmm. into an active job, you know, job and, and an art form. Right. Exactly. And that, that's, I think the, the more interesting part of it. And, and, you know, and I will say in terms of service to humanity, both, both you and Blake wore very political messages at Riot Fest on mm-hmm. your shirts, which I took a photo of because I was impressed and yeah, Well, I mean, it's it. a simple choice, you yeah. know? I think, I mean, I very pointedly chose an anti-fascist t-shirt because, you know, our idiot administration was trying to cast them as an anti-fa. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's like, you know... For God's sake, given a choice between fascists and non anti fascists, right. of course. You know, you Well and you have a special perspective. You you're 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 you have a degree in history yeah. and a and a bloodline that runs to Germany. So That's true, exactly. Know. Yeah, no, you know, there's a there's a reason. I mean a lot of people forget the pe- the first people who actually fought the Nazis were Germans. Yeah, exactly. You know? <laughs> exactly. Um so I, I just think it's you know, the the kind of going forward is is much more interesting to me, especially yeah. as an adult and um you know, we talked about it briefly yesterday, but 
you know, I'm playing music with Chuck, and as is Joshua. Joshua sings for that band. It's so different. He he played in Siren for a brief time mm-hmm. way back when, and it's such a different dynamic now. You know, with like us being all grown ups, and we don't all live in the same town. Right. Same thing. Right. He flies in every once a month or once every two months. And we mm-hmm. work on music, and it's it just is more like in line with my current life and responsibilities. Right. Cause it gives you, it, it, it's not all consuming. It's not like back yeah. in the nineties when I would have to go on the road for six weeks at a time, two months at a time and be away from Lucy and only have communication with her by telephone and right. by letter. I mean, and, and, and that was pay phones, you know, yeah. <laughs> you didn't, you couldn't just call from wherever, you know? Yeah. Um, the dying pay phone. Yeah. And that was, and that was, uh, yeah, that was, that was tough, you know? And I think, you know, it contributed in part, um, my developing relationship with Lucy con- and, and sort of a, a, adult pairing off there contributed greatly to my, um, not wanting to be away so much, yeah. you know? And that's one of the things that I, I value about the way we do things now is that I'm able to have still have a home life. Um, I'm a homebody, you yeah. know. I like I like hanging out with her. I like hanging out with my cats, yep. you know. Um, I mean, I honestly could try to find something, maybe another volunteer position to fulfill my time a little bit more. Um, I think I'm going to try to work with animals next. Nice. Uh, <laughs> do you think not drinking... My wife just swooned. Do you think, do you think being sober helped make this happen like helped you guys get back together and play music in some way do you think it could have yeah. happened otherwise I yeah mean. no i think i mean i think we were we were creating off and 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 you know um um just being able to manage my emotions better mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and let's be fair i'm medicated you know yeah, that mm-hmm. that helps a lot yeah, yeah. um um being able to to actually and I'm not going to say I don't have, you know, misgivings or fears every once in a while and little paranoias. I mean, uh, I, as I was saying, who was I saying this to? I think I was saying this to, to Blake and saying, you know, watch the, watch what I say in the movie. I'm about to go. Actually, that's, the, that's one of the weird things about that movie. Is I'm just about to go into my manic yeah. episode. Uh, totally. And yeah, it's yeah, one yeah, of the yeah. reasons I'm so, I have no filter. Yeah, or the, yeah. one of the reasons I'm just babbling. And if you want to know what my subconscious is saying, and like what that, that's the story that my subconscious tells me about what happened and what's going to happen. And right. so, um, but being able to recognize that that's just a story, a story. Yeah, exactly. A story. Well, that's, I mean, that's, that's what, that's huge. like 99% yes, yes. of the problem in the world. Yeah, right. That, <laughs> that was my oh, wife and oh. I this morning. We're talking about the same thing. Like, the stories I tell myself. Yeah. Like, I was like, I'm nervous about doing these interviews later. I'm nervous about this other stuff. I'm ner- it's all in my fucking head. Right. You know, once you're there, you're there, and it's fine, and it's... it's right. Yeah. Well, I, I just think it's... It, you know, for me, it's such a compelling story. And again, it's not so much a... I mean, obviously, I have a stake in the game because of the relationship that I have with Adam. Right. But the... And you guys, really, all of you now. But the the... It's not about any of that like what really has interests me and made me want specifically you and you know i talked to adam about you coming on the show and he's like oh he'll love it and then yesterday you're like oh i'm not sure i was like oh um is this is the kind of the the, chris is gonna be a hard get i didn't think so (laughs) he was freaking out yeah i was i called joshua i'm like i don't know if he really wants to do this but but i'll tell you the the thing that interested me wasn't talking about this band that everyone's already talking about it's actually your personal like journey to where you are now because it is so compelling and so inspiring and 
you know, it's hard to see that as the person. It's really hard. Well, I mean, it's one of the things that I have a hard time. And it's one of my issues is I'm relatively self-deprecating. Yeah, of course. And, and, and sort of um, insecure about, you know, my role in the world, period. But that so. comes with the sensitivity right. that, that you have that created the issues around substance abuse, that right. created the issues around mm. some of the other problems yeah. in your life. So being self-deprecating... I mean, I totally understand it. It's actually like... I do it all the time. It's a form of narcissism. It is. Uh, It's a little bit. Interesting. Because you're calling attention. You're saying me, me, me. Oh, yeah, you're right. Well, and the other thing is, is no one's feeling as bad for me as I am. (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to pretend everybody else is. But no, but the thing is, is that like what's compelling specifically about like the whole situation for me is that it came together from sort of like, you know, and I don't want to get too like corny with terms but it came from like the like the things that happened the adversity that was faced by like three of you and then the desire to like kind of create a new beginning you know and rewrite the end in some ways but really like it just feels more like uh like you guys like came a long way as people yeah, and that I think so you know and human like we talked about I hate it when humans do yeah fill in the blank right. I, I love it when humans realize that they have a problem and not only do they do something about it for themselves, and I'm not a huge bootstrap like mm-hmm. story guy. I don't really believe in that. I believe that everybody is offered an opportunity and has support somewhere along the way that says, "Come this way, I'm going to help you," and then you have a choice to take it or not. So this is interesting because I think I had issues with the whole twelve step program. Yeah. Um, a because I am complete atheist. Right. Um, you know, if anything, I've had concrete experiences of the void. Right. And I'm attracted to H.P. Lovecraft, not because of his racism, but because of the fact that he <laughs> well, talks about nether gods who don't care about reality, you right. know. Um, but um, um, where, where was I going with this? I get off on a H.P. Lovecraft side. Well, we were talking about support. So, yeah, I was raised by a German. Yeah. Okay. And so it was... You do it yourself. Right. You know, it's very easy to stop smoking, Christopher. You just don't do it. Right. Yeah. And so it was, you know, honestly, in some degree, it's, it, I think my sobriety um, comes from the same self-deprecating, same self-loathing part sure. of myself. You know, you know, I was hating seeing myself do that and what I did to people and feeling, you know, I can't do that anymore. That's yeah. just mm-hmm. vile. That's, you know, that's totally. uh, without any, you know, and so, so that's that whole part of, you know, the, the self, uh, like the 12 step that I just never got. Right. You know, love yourself, understand that you're an addict and you have no control over it. It's like, no, you have control over it. You have to do it yourself. Yeah. You know, and, and there are, I, there's a whole I, other school of it. That... I think that's, and I do think that that's partially true. But even when we're talking about like um, mental health stuff, mm-hmm. you, ha- I mean, at some point you have to go to a doctor and say, "What do I need to make true. my brain function true. correctly?" Because I don't know how to do yeah, this. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that is. I mean, that and that I have to say that 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 you know, having good health insurance <laughs> has helped immensely. That was one of the great things about the food bank job is, yeah. and it didn't have an, uh, it, it paid decently, but the it, we had full benefits, and so right. that, that essentially doubled your salary. Oh, okay. Josh is giving me the... We've been talking it's for a long time. my job as the We've been EP. talking forever, huh? Yeah, yeah. I feel but, like there's a lot of stuff I just want to cut and... <laughs> well, well, we'll go through it. Good. I mean, we're, we, we don't need to keep any of the, the band history stuff. Good. We don't need to keep. Um, and there's obviously the break-in from, from the yeah. other guys. Those yeah. guys, those interlopers coming in here. <laughs> um, but I, I just want to say, you know, I, I know there's a lot going on this week in San Francisco for, for you, for, you know, for the band, but... 
for us, you know, in the podcast, I just want to say thank you for opening up because the the reason we're doing this has little to do with like, oh, so-and-so is in this mm-hmm. or so-and-so does this. It's more about the person that comes on and how they've sort of faced adversity in, in their adult lives, how they've come through that adversity and how it can help people and inspire people around them. And, you know, obviously we, we all have a connection going all the way back to, you know, to the first time we heard whatever it was, whether right. it was a dead Kennedy's record or, uh, you know, a saccharine tr- trust record okay. or kill goes <laughs> record or, or velvet underground. Um, or jawbreaker. Yeah. And for a lot of people, it is that, but I, I think that, um, that what's more, more compelling is just kind of how you got here to 52 years old. Um, and you know, the journey that you have been on that got you here, because, you know, I have to say looking for something to do that's more, you know, whether it's Mm -hmm. volunteer work or community service or whatever else is great, but you, you, you've, you've inspired people today and especially me, I can say that from the bottom of my heart, it's been amazing. I think I have to say, I think, you know, when, when I said the other day, I was like, I'm not sure. I think I still have a little bit of that fear that, I mean, I have a tendency to just babble about stuff. And yeah. and sometimes I feel like I'm being too open. I was like, should I have said that? Should I have been like, should I have revealed that? Does that necessarily, you know, do I end up looking, I don't know, foolish? That's or, so, our, yeah. our version of ourselves is so funny. Because <laughs> like as a fan, like you always seem like, the normal dude to me like like you seem like someone that would be one of my friends or like a goofy guy that seems cool and it isn't in it you know his head isn't too big and like you was always like it's so interesting and then the other things i really want to thank you uh for coming on and and say like as far as you guys getting back together and stuff and your journey that's very that's personal and that's yours but but at a time when like a lot of people were so fucking bummed out yeah and um to find out Jawbreaker's playing and back is just a little thing in the day for everybody that we got to go see each other that's and get funny. excited. That's That's exactly, you know, that's exactly, yeah. when I was, I was talking with Blake about that this morning and saying this exact thing about, yeah. Yeah, you know, so how do I feel? And, th- and that was his response. It's like that, you know, it provides some people with some hope. In a optimism. Time which is, yeah, yes. in a time which is, yeah. I think, yeah, I'm, I'm happy that that's the case. You know, if that's the case, well, that's I will, great. I will also share a, just a really small personal story. I, I was in Portland with you guys, whatever it was, two months ago. Yeah. And I brought Caitlin with me, my, my almost 10-year-old, who just, will, for whatever reason, loves Adam. You know? <laughs> <laughs> <And> <laughs> adores him. And, um, but uh, you came out and hung out with us at the merch table for a little over an hour, probably, maybe longer. And it was the highlight of the... Because it just felt so natural. And one of the things you said to me was, this is the reason I joined a band was to hang out at the merch table and just talk to people. Yeah. Because you, and you even said it, because I am such an introvert most right. of the time. Exactly, I mean, it's, it gives me an excuse. I mean, one of the reasons I, I joined a band, I wanted to be in a band, and the one of the reasons, actually to this day, I sometimes have problems being at a show that I'm not playing. It's like, mm. what's my role here? Mm-hmm. You know, how, what, what's my reason for talking to people, you know? Yeah. Whereas, you know, when I'm at a show of my own, you know, there's a reason for people to talk to me, you know? Um, totally. And, you know, it's different when I, you know, when I'm at home and there's friends and I know they'll show and I'll yep. be able to talk to people I know. Um, but yeah, it's 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 that's the that's the thing I used to use alcohol and drugs for. Right. You know, was right, to overcome right, right. that that yeah. anxiety yeah. of of 
trying to, you know, this misgivings of having, I, why should I be able to talk to people? Why, why do people want to talk to me? Right. When you're drunk, you're like, yeah, I'm the life of the party. <laughs> hey, everyone loves me. You know? Totally. Oh, <laughs> totally. Totally. Oh, man. Oh, my God. Thank so, you so much yeah, for coming thanks. on. Please, Such a cool guy. Chris, it's, it's been, been a fun. pleasure. Yeah. And, cool. and um, yeah, if we, uh, if you're, when you guys are back out here again, I know there's, there's allegedly new material coming. Look, I will be satisfied if we get the Hungry Jack cover. So, <laughs> <laughs> I, I just, uh, it was really enjoyable to have you on. So thank Absolutely. You so much. Thank you so much. Cool. And thanks for listening, everybody.